Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 55. On this episode, I have Mike Pearson of Market to Market. On this episode, Mike's going to talk about the overall ag economy, trade agreements, China, and what's, what 2018 might uh, start to look like. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was fun being down there with, uh, with all the Moving Iron guys last year, and I, I hope this year is uh, is still plugging along for you. Yeah, it's working. It's coming together. You know, we're still doing the planning thing, so hopefully it'll it'll all come together here pretty good here uh, towards the uh, October deadline. So, I uh, thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, hey, thanks for thinking of me. You bet. And, you know, it's it's one of those things we've got more than enough to talk about when we look at what's happening in the world of ag today. Yeah. So, before we get started, Mike, give me give me a little background on yourself. Um, I've I've kind of followed your your career along with Market to Market and and you know, read your stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere else. So give us a little background on yourself and who you are. You bet. So I grew up on a, uh, on a farm in Southern Iowa and, uh, you know, we raised hogs when I was young and then we, uh, dad changed jobs. We left that farm in far Southern Iowa, moved up to Winterset, Iowa and, uh, got into the cattle business. And dad was a stockbroker and the, uh, host of market to market before I was, and uh, after high school, I went to college, went to a community college, worked construction, got my liberal arts degree, went up to Iowa State, was studying economics, thought I had my dream of getting to work in the Chicago Federal Reserve, and uh, went over there and job shadowed for a couple of days, and turns out that's a really boring job. <laughs> and, uh, I had a, uh, had a girlfriend at the time, and things were, were not going great, so I dropped out of school and moved out to Scottsdale, Arizona and uh, attended bar for a little bit. And that was a, it was educational in the sense that uh, I learned how to talk to folks. You know, that's one of the great, great skills you pick up as you're behind the bar is talking to anybody and everybody. And uh, then the recession hit, of course, Arizona and Phoenix in particular was hit hard. There was not a lot of money to be made. So I decided that was a good time to go back to school and finish my degree. So I moved back home and uh, took over kind of the family cow herd that we had at the time. And uh, went to Simpson College, graduated with a degree in history and a minor in philosophy. And uh, after graduation, started casting around looking for a job and had the chance to get hired by a bank. And uh, so in 2009, moved over to Grinnell, Iowa, and uh, got married and started writing mortgage loans in 2009. Not the best time to get into the mortgage business, but... um, Pretty quickly, I rolled out of mortgages and into ag lending because the background I had just grown up on a farm and knowing how to talk the talk. And then in 2012, uh, my dad, Mark Pearson, passed away very suddenly from a heart attack. And um, they asked if I would be willing to step into his shoes as the host of Market to Market. And I'd never done any TV before. I'd, I'd never considered it. You know, I just kind of always thought that was dad's show. And, you know, dad was going to be around you know, forever. and. Uh, Got, got started doing it and just, just fell in love with, with being in the media, talking on TV, talking to experts in the world of grain and livestock and folks who understand the ag economy, you know, men and women who live and breathe this business. And uh, did that for, uh, for four years. And then a coworker and I started the, our own podcast. You know, Casey, just like everybody and their brother, right. <laughs> you got to have a right. podcast nowadays. Got to have a podcast. So, yeah, exactly. Love podcasts. So we, uh, we started one called Ag News Daily, and so we're a daily 30-minute ag podcast. And then uh, just in December, with the, uh, the advent of, of all the speaking and the podcast and everything, and then I uh, 
I was actually picked up for a DUI in Wisconsin. Uh, I resigned from market to market and uh, turning most of my focus now to the, the podcast and speaking and, you know, just uh, just doing that stuff. So it, it's been a lot of fun. I get to travel across the country and, and talk to farm groups. And, you know, this week I was in New Orleans. Last week I was in Phoenix and Manhattan, Kansas, and Fargo, North Dakota. You get to, I, I really appreciate getting to have a feel for what's happening in ag pretty well across the Corn Belt. I don't get to California uh, ever, <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, for most of our corn and soybean growers, cattle producers, wheat producers, you know, that's kind of my wheelhouse. And those are the folks I talk to and the markets I really keep abreast with them and uh, them and livestock, of course. Right. So, well, that's a, that's a pretty diverse background you have there. So, you know, here we are in, <laughs> moving out of, moving out of 2017, going into 2018. Um, we've been in this kind of free for all kind of down downward trend since about 2013 um where did you see us coming out of 17 and how do you see 2018 shaping up in the overall ag marketplace well you know i think if we look at it by commodity sector if we look at let's look at grains first because i think we've got two very different dynamics going on between the grain market and the livestock markets and of course even within the grains we've got some some uh the differences between the markets. But if we look at our feed grains, if we look at wheat and corn, the situation that we're dealing with in both of those markets, and I know this is not news to your listeners, we've lived and breathed this for the past five years, the challenge that we keep running into is that American producers, North American, I mean, we could add Canadian right to this, we're just too damn good. That's the trouble. We had less than perfect weather last year, still grew. National uh, national record uh, you know, yield, per acre. And um, these are the things that are, that are really bringing us down. That being said, here we are, 2017, we've had five years or four years anyway of record crops, and we still have corn trading, you know, cash corn at $3 plus in a lot of places. And I think what we're seeing is the market is coming to grips with the fact that we have burdensome supplies in corn and wheat. And I think it's coming to grips with the fact that we're going to have big supplies for the foreseeable future. You know, we're to the point now, Casey, where even if we get a 2012-style drought, that's, that's basically going to bring down the supplies. It's not going to put us in a tight stock scenario like it did in 2012. We're not going to see $7 corn. But the good news is when we can look out to the future, our end users, be it ethanol, be it livestock, be it uh, export partners, which <laughs> that's a whole other topic I'm sure we're going to come back to, yeah. they can sit down and they can know with confidence that they're going to be able to source grain at an affordable rate for the foreseeable future. So what we're doing 2017, 2018, I think we'll probably continue this in 2019, is we're going to be building a good broad base of demand. And one of the things that, that sticks out at me, when we think of agriculture, 2005, call it to 2013, it was, it was pretty easy sailing for the most part. I mean, we had profitability pretty much all of those years, 09, with the one exception for some growers. We had nearly every commodity produced in this country from row crops to livestock to poultry, you name it, we all hit record high prices in there. We've now come down from that. But we are going to see this demand-based build. We scared off a lot of end users 
in that high price range, now those all are coming back in. We're seeing ethanol plants for the first time in, oh, five or six years begin expansions. And we're seeing new plants under construction. I was up in North Dakota, and they are now voting on, uh, on whether or not to construct another massive ethanol plant uh, up there in Johnstown, which is that's really good news. And I think that's going to allow us to keep the ball rolling in agriculture. Probably not going to see $300 an acre profits, $500 an acre profits, $800 an acre profits like we saw in 2012 and 2013 for a lot of grain growers. But we're going to see input prices come down and we're going to see growers continue to make investments in their operations because they can still fight that battle and win it for profitability. So that's where I think we're at right now on the feed grain side as we look at, uh, at 2017 moving into 2018. And uh, you talk to a lot of growers. Casey, what are you hearing? Is that kind of uh, the same boat that you're hearing? Oh, yeah. I mean, most guys I talk to, the producers we have around here, you know, they're making their money right now where there is on, like you said, the, the bumper crops that they're, that they're having. You know, they are anticipating, yes. you know, they got a, you know, a fixed cost over here of a, so many dollars per bushel that they need to produce. And then, you know, the way the, the, uh, the prices are reading now. They can't get it based on what they're going to do, but all of a sudden they made an extra 40 or 50 or 100 bushels an acre or whatever it was that, that they got, and all of a sudden they made some money. And that and that's really where they're at now. And, and it's that they show up late. <clears throat> they show up late to the game um, because they just now realize they had some money, and now they're ready to do something and move forward. Absolutely. And, you know, that's interesting. I Yeah, it's neat you see that because you're out there in western Nebraska. I hear the same thing up in North Dakota, whether I'm in Minnesota or Illinois and Indiana. It's big yields that have bailed out these guys. All these bankers go into renewal season thinking, boy, this is going to be the year. We're going to be shutting guys off. We're going to be pulling lines of credit. We're going to be cracking down. And then they growers and their growers go, hey, you know, we had penciled out at, uh, you know, 45 bushel beans and we ended up with 60. Or, you know, we'd figured we'd have 180 bushel corn and we wound up with 210. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got an extra 90 bucks an acre to play with. And that's real money. And like you say, those are the guys that they're not learning that until the end of the year. So your, you know, front for your first six months of the year, purchases might have been constrained. But because of that, they were able to stay profitable and then be pleasantly surprised with these big yields. Yeah. And, and a lot of the dealers I talked to, too, are saying the same. They said the same thing, you know. The first half of the year, if, if I would have based the entire year uh, expectations off of what happened after uh, after spring harvest, um, I would have said we were all going to go bankrupt because it was just awful. No matter right. who we talked to, it was slow. We're not getting anybody to do anything, yada, yada, yada. Um, after corn harvest and bean harvest was over and they got everything in the bin and they counted everything they had, um, man, it was – there was just guys coming in, not like – gangbusters by any means but they were they were coming in and they were actively buying stuff and but it was the last you bet 30 days of the year that they were doing that yeah yeah that was you know after they'd sat down with their cpas and like you say gotten everything counted mm -hmm. but i think that tells us something really cool about the ag economy as we sit here in 2017 if if we look back and of course i i didn't grow up in the 80s and casey i, I know you didn't either you weren't you weren't in the business in the 80s but i listened to stories from guys like my old lending supervisors. And even when guys, even in those years, they'd eke out a profit, they'd stick it under the mattress because times were tough and there was not a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas we sit here at the end of 2017, early 2018, and we got guys now we're profitable. Rather than sticking it under the mattress, rather than squirreling it away, 
They're looking, I think, at their operation and they're going, okay, I have a small amount of money to spend, but I got some money. I know that I need to stay competitive. I need to keep my costs low. I need to keep these yields high. So I'm going to make investments in my operation. And that's, I think, one of the things that's still exciting is this optimism that we have as an industry. People are going, okay, I'm going to make an upgrade this year. I'm not going to upgrade the whole fleet like I did in 2012, but I'm going to take this you know, six-year-old tractor with 5,000 hours, and we're going to trade this off, and we're going to upgrade that piece of equipment so I can stay competitive and, uh, and not suffer a lot of downtime during, during planting and harvest. And I, that's very encouraging to me because I think the problem that we're going to have to keep an eye out for is twofold. One is, is folks getting over-leveraged, taking medium-term machinery debt, you know, the intermediate debt, and rolling it onto land and chewing up equity that way. And so far, that hasn't been much of a concern, according to the lenders I've talked to. And then the second problem is folks getting depressed and then failing to invest in their operation and, you know, slowly falling back. And I think those of the producers over the next 10 years or 15 years that are going to suffer the most. Because we do know that demand is huge. Domestically, livestock herds are growing. Ethanol plants are expanding. We're building new soybean crush plants in this country for the first time since like 1995. And we've got this demand growing, but in order to keep feeding that demand and stay profitable, we're going to keep bringing uh, yields up on our operations. And in order to do that, you got to be willing to invest in your business. And, and the fact that guys are still willing to make that investment tells me that, uh, there's confidence out there, there's capital out there, and there's people feeling secure enough in their future that they're going to be able to, to pull the trigger and stay up to date with what they need to do to stay in business. Yeah, and we, we preach that a lot here is, is the, you know, learning the efficiencies of your business and, you know, taking the same number of acres that you have and either, you know, a producing more on those acres or driving your costs down and producing the same amount. And that's, that's the, uh, we're seeing that so much now with technology. I had a guy on, uh, calling her to smart ag. I'm on here. Uh, oh yeah. Ago. You know that he, they have, a, they have a thing you can put in a tractor. Got, as long as it's got a canvas system in it, um, it drives itself. You don't have to have anybody in it, you know, and it, it does it all for you. So, right. And it's a 24 hour thing. As long as you got someone there to put grain in it from a combine, you, you do, you got a machine that's going to go to work every day. So, you know, efficiencies are becoming a bigger part of the business and, and more and more people are looking at efficiencies. And even when times get, you know, really good again, I think efficiencies are always going to be such a, an overwhelming factor in, in farming and ranching moving forward. Absolutely. It's those efficiencies that separate the producers that are able to, to pass on an operation to the next generation from those producers that are that are living hand to mouth and might have to, to sell some ground, you know, to keep up with the banker or they're going to miss out on some profit opportunities when we do have a weather scare, when we do have something that uh, that drives prices back northward. Right. Yep. And that's. Yeah, it's, that's such a such an amazing part of, of, of this of this business. So. You were talking to Colin Her, getting update from him. I had to work with Colin and the five other entrepreneurs at a deal for a credit system down in Des Moines, and they let the audience vote. It was kind of a Shark Tank type, you know, make your pitch and 
what are you providing to farmers? There were a bunch of farmers in the audience, and they got to vote on what was the kind of the coolest technology that these guys were developing. And uh, Colin at Smart Ag won five grand for being the uh, for being one of the the farmer chosen coolest technologies with that uh, driverless tractor system. Because yeah, it's one of those things where yeah. I thought it was fifteen years away, ten years away from it really being something. You know what I mean? And it's yep. You know, the spring here it comes. So get ready. You know, it's yeah, yeah. I think I think he still said he had uh, he had three demo units that he was finding a home for. Otherwise, he's got forty seven units out there, or will be out there this year doing beta testing in the field in two thousand and eighteen. I'm in I'm in the same boat you were. I thought when Case IH unveiled their autonomous tractor, well, last year, two years ago at Farm Progress, I thought, oh, that's cool. And in twenty years, we'll see him out on the farm. And now. Nope, yeah. they're going to be out there this year, which yeah. is, yeah, yeah, it's mind-blowing what technology can do today. It's that labor, and that goes back to the efficiency thing. It's the labor in, you know, the lack of farm labor that we're, that we're seeing these days. That's what's driving that technology. That's what people are wanting when they when they see those come through. That's what they're wanting it for, not necessarily because it's cool and, you know, whatever. They, right. they want it because they don't have anyone to drive the tractor. That's why they want that to come in and take over from the farm. Exactly. And even if you got somebody to drive the tractor, you know, there's an extra cost. And if you're a, if you're a big enough operation, you're paying unemployment insurance and you're, you know, crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's and, and that dollars up pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take long for it. It really doesn't take long for it to, to, I mean, it, it's really an inexpensive thing too. If you go on the website and check it out, it is not an overwhelmingly huge amount of dollars you got to lay out to get this system. It's the same as about any, any AMS system or any GPS system that you're going to put in your tractor. It's, it's about the same cost and it's, it, yeah. it's amazing what it is. It really is. You bet. All right. So when we were in Nashville uh, last year at the moving nine summit there, you brought up a, you had a, on your presentation, you had a chart that showed a 30 year cycle, um, well, several 30 year cycles of, of ag. And, and that was, that was one of the things, my biggest takeaway from, from that meeting. And, Basically, you had a, you know, every 30 years, there's a, a huge upswing and then it comes way back down. And then at the bottom of that 30 year cycle, there's a, that's you at the bottom, and you start making your way back out. And oddly enough, your, your chart showed that we were going towards the bottom now, hopefully, and uh, hopefully heading our way out. So <clears throat> talk about that a little bit and, and how, that, how you came up with that, that data. You betcha. So, you know, this comes back to, to my history degree. Most folks think, you know, it's kind of a joke degree and I, I kind of thought so too, but I could BS my way through it. But there is a lot we can take away from history, particularly in an industry like agriculture. We're always adapting. We're always changing efficiencies and practices on the farm. But at the end of the day, we are the closest thing we have in the world to what is considered a market of perfect competition. Basically, barriers to entry are low enough that if anybody wants to farm, and that's, it's changing now, but historically, it was low enough that if you wanted to farm, you could. And you knew what price you had to make money at because the futures market showed us. These are the prices you need to hit. And so over a long enough time span, in an industry with perfect competition, the average profitability is zero. And that's because what we do is we operate in a series of booms and busts. And so that chart that you're talking about, that's one of my favorite visualizations of the ag industry. Basically, I took a look at net cash revenue per acre, net cash corn sale revenue per acre, going back to 1900. That's as far back as we've got reliable data. And what we see are four very 
specific and very definable periods where demand exploded. One of them was in, in 1917, 1918, of course, the end of World War I. Everybody, you know, Europe agriculture is, is in terrible shape, so everybody comes to America. Demand exploded, prices exploded. The next one happened at the end of World War II. Same story. Global agriculture was in the toilet. America was untouched. We saw demand spike. The third spike happened in 1973. Brand new source of demand. We effectively brought communists in Russia out of starvation due to the productive capability of American agriculture, and demand exploded. And then, of course, the most recent one was, you know, that 05 to 13 period when we had the confluence of ethanol, China, and the global recession all push demand for ag products higher. And that's where we that's where we spike these prices. That's where we see incredible revenue and profitability per acre. But, you know, Casey, you know this. I'm guessing all of your listeners know this. High prices cure high prices. And in an industry with perfect competition, those prices are displayed around the world. And so in 19, uh, 1918, after that big spike, that first one, in 1979, when that 1970s boom busted, we entered a period of crisis in ag. In both of those periods, we saw in uh, the 19-teens, we just overproduced. We started putting tractors on the Great Plains. We plowed up Kansas, the Oklahoma Panhandle in Texas, planted wheat every place. And uh, before we knew it, we just had more wheat than we could shake a stick at. Same story in the 70s. We were growing corn to feed Russia, growing wheat to feed Russia. And then Jimmy Carter put the grain embargo in place, and we just lost a massive market. And so in both cases, we were sitting on huge supplies that the market had encouraged farmers to grow. And it takes a long time to chew our way out of those supplies. You know, it took till World War II to get us out of the first one. And it took till really probably about the year 1998 to chew us out of the, uh, the most recent bust of the 1980s. But there's another dynamic. And that's the dynamic that happened after the price explosion at the end of World War II. What happened is, same story, prices exploded, everybody got into it, everybody and their brother went out and bought tractors, and uh, we mechanized ag. And we grew our productive capability hugely across the country from 1946 through about 1955. We put more acres into production, we were producing more on those acres. Everything should have told us that we were going to see a crisis in the 1950s and 60s, but we didn't. What happened was we had the biggest generation in American history, the baby boomers, they were being born and they were growing up and their families wanted them to have a better life than they had had growing up in the Great Depression. And that meant eating more meat and eggs and dairy. And we also saw a whole new industry develop in this country in the 50s and 60s, and that's fast food. All of a sudden, we're going out to eat. We're stopping at restaurants. We're, we're buying meat you know, hamburger patties from McDonald's on the go for 15 cents a crack, and we had to grow the livestock herd. We were doing it in this country, and we were seeing it happen in Western Europe right at the same time. And what that did is that built up a demand base underneath this huge surplus of grain that allowed farmers to find profitable stability in agriculture. And we had two decades where prices weren't great. It wasn't record profitability per acre, but it was profitability per acre. 
And we saw massive expansions again in mechanization. You know, this was we moved from the, the two-cylinder John Deere's to the, the 40 series John Deere's, the new generations. You know, we had all of these things changing in that time frame because growers were able to make money. And so when I look at where we are today, even if history doesn't repeat, things are always a little bit different, I think the next five to ten years are going to look a lot, look a lot more like the 1950s. I think that demand story is coming back in a big enough way that we're going to chew through these grain surpluses. We're not going to see corn fall back to a dollar seventy-five cash or beans go back to six dollars. I, I do not think that is in the cards. Absent, you know, some kind of of you know real catastrophe, a meteor strike, or or nuclear war with uh, North Korea. Right. That, that would be right. that would be awful on the grain market. Um, absent those things happening, we've got enough demand in this country and in Southeast Asia, and a little bit in Europe, a little bit in Africa. It's growing, but we've got folks wanting to eat meat, and that's how we're going to profitability. I think it's probably going to be 10-plus years before we see big profitability per acre, before we see those 2009, 2010, 2011, you know, four or $500 an acre profitability points. I, I, I think that there's enough global grain production to kind of keep a ceiling on us. But could we see one to 200, maybe 250 bucks an acre profitability any time in the next 10 years, corn, bean, and maybe wheat production, that's kind of the one outlier. Um, the answer to my mind is, is yeah, we absolutely could. We're going to have to keep yields growing. We're going to have to keep production growing just to keep up with this new demand, both from livestock and ethanol. All right, Mike. So I've read a lot of articles here of late about, um, you know, Purdue put one out not too long ago talking about the, the fragileness of the marketplace. You know, Ag, uh, AgWeb's got a lot of articles out there that talk about um, – different struggles in the ag market and then so you know you kind of get this sense of there there is some obviously some issues out there now a lot of that also could be you know if it, if it bleeds it leads type of deal but um throw all that into one pot and then throw china uh retaliating on some tariff stuff that we put out there and and they're targeting u.s ag uh agricultural products uh, in that tariff so Give me your what I mean with the people you talk to and what's going on. I mean, NAFTA's a big deal. You got the Chinese over here; they're they're kind of mad now after we, after Trump had this big, you know, Chinese tour not too long ago, and he came back with all these great deals. And who knows if they were going to buy that stuff or not um, during that time frame? But you know, here we are with uh, a fragile economy, and now we're looking at you know one of our biggest trade partners is not overly happy with what's going on. So, give me your feedback on what you're hearing out there. Yeah. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head and it's not one of our biggest trade partners. It's three of our biggest trade partners, the top right. three, Canada, Mexico, and China. So <clears throat> we're not BFFs with any of them right now. Yep. And, um, ah, you know, it's, it is frustrating because I'm, I'm a demand bull. I, I think we're going to, we're going to chew our way out of this, but in order to do that, we can't do it alone in this country. We got to have buyers in China, in Vietnam, in Japan, in uh, Thailand, in Indonesia, in Canada, in Mexico, in Colombia, in Korea. And these are all places that here in the past year, we have seen uh, spitting matches start to take place. And 
part of me, part of me gets it. You know, President Trump ran on a protectionist foreign policy. You know, he wants to make America great again. He wants us to be number one. You know, he looks at, at international trade and sees a trade deficit and uh, doesn't think we should have that. And, you know, economists go back and forth. I, most of them that I've read and talked to, they don't put a whole lot of stock in the trade deficit because it's not really a deficit. We want their stuff and they want our dollars. And so that's what we're trading. So it's a trade push. But either way, we can't, I, I think, keep upsetting them. The good news is, even if we do upset them, they're not going to be able to swing too hard at corn and soybeans and pork and beef. Uh, beef less so. Corn, soybeans, and pork, we swing the biggest hammer globally when it comes to those eggs. And those three commodities, and, and wheat, those four commodities, they're all globally traded. And so when we talk about them, we're talking global supply and demand balance sheets. And so let's say that China wants to stick it to the American wheat grower and they go ahead and they put a 20% tariff on, on U.S. wheat. Uh, let's use soy, China. China says, we're going to put a 20% tariff on U.S. soy. So now if you're going to bring soybeans into China, it's going to cost you 12 bucks a bushel, FOB United States, rather than, you know, rough 10 bucks a bushel. Well, okay, America is going to lose soybean shipments to China. Those soybeans are going to be purchased from Brazil. They're going to be purchased from Argentina. Well, what that means is that a lot of the folks that Brazil and Argentina sell to, they're going to be looking for beans and they'll turn to the U.S. The biggest challenges we're going to see, we're already seeing take place. The Chinese invented trading. They know how to do this. Trump, I think, is probably a great deal maker, but he's dealing with people that have been trading and making deals for 4,500 years, and it's in their blood. And so they look at they look at America, and they see who voted for Trump, and they hear about a 20% tariff on washing machines and a 30% tariff on solar panels, and they go, okay, what can we do that isn't going to hurt China but is going to hurt President Trump? And they looked around, and they said, you know what? Milo and sorghum, those two things, we can quit buying tomorrow, and the Kansas farmers that raised them voted heavily for Trump. That's going to get the message back there. And so what crop is China looking to, uh, to complain about us to the WTO with? Sorghum. That's where they're hitting at us. And so I think we're going to see a lot of these. Um, you can almost think of them like sniper attacks. They're not going to try and hurt the whole industry all at once because at the end of the day, the Chinese government wants to keep its people fat and happy, or at least fed and happy, so they don't start rioting. They don't want a repeat of Arab Spring in China. So they're going to keep them happy, so they got to keep them supplied with pork and, and bean. But, Mo, we look at, at wheat's one of those that can get kicked quite a bit. You look at specialty crops, whether it's edible beans, whether it's anything produced in California on small acreage, all of these things I think we're going to see as we keep these trade battles brewing, we're going to see tariffs get added to kale and we'll see tariffs get added to kidney beans. And we'll see these little pot shots that are going to craft it in such a way to shake up Trump supporters the most. And hopefully then those folks in, in the Chinese mind, they'll complain to their congressman, they'll complain to President Trump and get these tariffs revoked. 
the bigger picture, the thing that has me more worried is President Trump came in, pulled us out of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, that deal still hasn't gone through. It might not. Canada's the sticking point now. Uh, you know, maybe TPP was never going to work. But Trump said, hey, we're going to do a bunch of bilateral trade agreements, and that's how we're going to make America first. Great. The trouble is we haven't started with any of them. All we've been doing for the past year during this Trump presidency, or, you know, yeah, full year now, almost a year plus, all, all we've done is go back and try to renegotiate existing free trade agreements, which have worked really well for agriculture. Chorus, the uh, Korean-U.S. Uh, free trade agreement has been huge. The South Korea has become a massive market for domestic or for U.S. produced beef and pork. We look at Mexico. We look at Canada. We look at Colombia. All of these are free trade agreements that might have their problems. I'm no trade expert when we're talking manufacturing or intellectual property or anything like that. But from an ag perspective, all of those agreements were huge wins. Rather than writing new ones, which is what the EU is doing, we're relitigating these old ones. And I just, I hope that we don't lose any ground because it is where there is some serious fragility in this market. If we lose our, our duty-free access into these countries with a growing middle class and a demand for the, the safety that's, that comes with U.S. produced food, boy, that's going to sting. And I hate to see that business all go over to Europe. Um, and the Europeans are actively fighting for it right now. They've got a new agreement signed or in the process of being signed with Japan. They're trying to step in and, and kind of coerce or at least uh, sweeten the pot with a lot of these TPP countries. And uh, that's going to be a massive headwind for us. I hope that we can get the story to this president and to his trade negotiation team that free trade it, it might have hurt auto workers and it, it might have hurt you know manufacturers in in uh, on the East Coast. But by golly, it has been darn good for agriculture. Let's make sure we don't lose that advantage. Basically, the one thing we have that brings down the trade deficit is agricultural sales. <laughs> Those are the things that are going to get hurt the fastest. So there's there's always rain clouds on the horizon in agriculture. And I think it's just a reminder that all of us in this industry, from producer to retailer to uh, to global supplier, we got to be active politically. It sucks. Nobody, none of us want to read, you know, the, the Washington, you know, legislation report. But we got to keep up to date on this stuff or we'll, we're, we're, we're going to get hosed is my worry. Yeah, and that's that's the thing too that I, that I you know you read countries like like South Korea for example. When I was growing up, you know I'm 40 years old, so when I was growing up, South Korea wasn't much better than North Korea when it came to their overall economy. You know what I mean? They were everybody yeah. was starving. You know they they lived in squalor. You know it was whatever it was. China was was the same way. You know Tiananmen Square and all those different things and the protests and riots and those things that came out that way. And now those countries now are becoming. You know, Vietnam, another one like that. You know, all of those countries now are, they have a thriving middle class, you know, and they're, they want protein. And there's not a lot of places in the world that have readily available protein like the U.S. does. And we can produce yes. it. We can really crank it out, you know, uh, cheaper than probably anywhere else in the world. Especially when you start, even like, yeah. even in South America, yes, they can grow an acre of crop 
cheaper than we can in the U.S., but it also takes 24 hours for them to get one truck of, of grain from the field to the port. And it takes us, you know, just train loads of cars, of, of grain and stuff, to the port in 24 hours. It's just so much – the U.S. ag economy has so much more to offer the world than, than anywhere else does. Absolutely. And, you know, you touched on it's all of the advantages come together right here in the U.S. Uh, there was a great book by a guy named Peter Zion, and it's called The Accidental Superpower. And, and I would encourage oh, great anybody book. to yeah. buy it. And, and yeah, so you've read it. Have you yeah. ever heard him speak? I've not heard him speak. I heard him for the before. first. Yeah. Oh, man, I heard him speak for the first time. And he really changed the way I look at it. The advantages that we have being an agricultural production in the U.S. with the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, the lock and dam system, and all those things need some work. But, man, even just in the condition they're in right now, they give us huge advantages. And then the other thing that I don't think we think about a lot, but international buyers do, is safety. The food system that we've developed in this country, from raising livestock, slaughtering livestock, growing grain, shipping it overseas, we have the safest food supply in the world. I was just reading about, this was a couple of years ago in China, they were using what they called beef extract, and it was effectively, um, oh, basically, hema, which is the, uh, the kind of the red stuff, your juice that comes out of your steak. They were blending it with pork and basically cooking it in a pressure cooker for 90 minutes, and they were turning ground pork into what they called beef, and it wasn't, of course, it was pork, but it had enough flavor, you know, that people were buying it like beef, but it also had all kinds of horrible toxins and heavy metals, and now it's been banned because it kills a bunch of people. We've never had that happen in this country. U.S. food is safer than food produced anywhere else in the world. A fraction of us, like you say, we got to get into those markets. Vietnam, who'd have guessed, 40, oh, gosh, 50 years ago now, you know, we were fighting the communists in Vietnam. Now Vietnam is one of the world's leading importers of cotton because they're producing all kinds of textiles that you and I are buying. And the people producing those textiles, working in those factories, they're going home and they want to give their family a chicken breast for dinner. They want to give them a, a you know, pork tongue or, you know, some of the, the more, the different cuts that you and I don't eat a whole lot of. Right. Um, that's what they're looking for. Those high value protein sources. And we got to be able to stay in those markets and, Keep swinging that hammer. Yeah, and that's the one thing, too, I think that gets lost in, in the conversation that you don't really hear on the news anymore. Like, you hear it on the news, but they don't really, you know, obviously they want to tell you the worst possible thing that's happening so everyone pays attention. Yeah. But, but the one thing about that whole argument is those people in those other countries now that, that were third world countries are now they're emerging into what, you know emerging markets and stuff now they're eating meat because it's Tuesday not because it's their birthday you know so there's there's a lot of right that's such a dynamic thing that, that people are missing yeah it is and you know you look at that whole part of the world and you know that corner of Southeast Asia that's home to 3 billion people half the world's population lives there and uh, well and just Chinese Chinese meat consumption 2006 to 2016 jumped 42% per capita. That would be if you and I and everybody in this country, man, woman, and child, all 330 million of us, ate 60 more pounds of meat per year. That would be a 42% increase in meat consumption in this country. And they did it in China in 10 years. That's huge. And it's it's just like you say, it's no longer a special occasion food. It's 
it's daily or it's it's weekly it's taco night or you know whatever uh not all that not all that up on uh, on chinese delicacies you know it's beef broccoli <laughs> night not beef broccoli for my birthday right 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 yeah so it's it's a it's a dynamic market night and i you know i get the trade thing and i understand where it's coming from and there's there is a fine line that you have to walk and and one of my biggest problems with a lot of these trade agreements is that you know they treat corn and wheat and soybeans the same way they treat you know tires and lug nuts you know it's just they're all like kind of lumped into one thing and then we're going to do all these different things and we'll trade you for this and we'll do these different things and and i get that there's there's a level of thing there's a level there that we have to 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 meet but god dang at the end of the day we can't screw up what we've done thus far with with agriculture as far as world trade goes absolutely we gotta we gotta stay in the game we gotta stay on the field and uh, keep making sure our voices are heard because you know folks that have lost manufacturing jobs to asia they've got a really powerful lobby they've got a great story it's a very sad story to tell and you hate to see americans put out of work but um if they're the only narrative driving this conversation then yeah trade deals look really bad because they've cost americans jobs that's a fact but they've also added jobs to america particularly throughout the Midwest, California, Central Valley, upstate New York. I mean, that's where ag has shined. And we've just got to make sure that the president and his trade team understands that. And I think Sonny Perdue gets it. Everything I've heard from uh, Secretary of Ag Sonny Perdue seems to be right on target. I don't know how much say he has in this administration, but uh, I, I think he's, the, he's certainly the right guy for that job as long as he can keep it in front of the president, you know? Yep. And that, that's, I agree with that too. I mean, Sonny Perdue has done a great job um, as being ag secretary and he's, he's really brought, I think he knows how to talk to the president and, and, and bring those things to light. And he understands what, what's going on, you know, and he was, because he, you know, he's always been an ag his, his, his whole career, you know? So, um, right. Even, even when he was in governor, you and know, he's he been knew. in the export side of ag. Yeah. He's been actually selling <laughs> stuff overseas and I've never done that. Yeah. He's got a better grasp of it than I do, and that's the guy we want up there. And you're right, talking to the president, there's something something about the way he approaches things. It must click with President Trump, being yep. and uh, and that's what we need. That's what we need. Somebody who can get in there and say, "Hey, look, uh, President Trump, I, I understand what you're trying to do, but let's, you know, what did you think about this?" And uh, you know, it's it's good if we're selling beef to the Mexicans and selling pork to the Canadians and you know selling dairy to the Chinese. That's that's all a good thing. We're getting their money. That's what we're in business to do. Yep. One thing I hope happens out of this whole deal more than anything is that we figure out a way to start exporting. Um, I think we are a little bit now, but on a, on a grander scale is exporting refined ethanol. I think that is going to be a key to the U.S. corn market, even biodiesels in, as a whole, that that would bring prices up to, to a very stable level if we can figure out how to, to market that across the world. To have. Anytime we can ship a refined product, whether it's ethanol, whether it's pork and beef, which is certainly a, a refined grain product, that's a big win. And I was really encouraged. I, I heard a talk from the uh, U.S. Grains Council, USGC, and uh, he was talking about how there is, we're kind of on the tipping point right now. In the next, I think by 2022, right now we're exporting about a million gallons of ethanol around the world. By 2022, he thinks that they're going, we, the United States, the export four gallons of ethanol predominantly Asia and a little bit into the Middle East, bizarrely enough. But uh, yeah, that's it's coming. And again, we just have to make sure that it's, it's U.S. ethanol getting uh, 
prime billing and not Brazilian sugarcane ethanol, because again, they're going to be one of our chief chief competitors on the global stage. But yeah, that would be great news if we could start shipping that stuff out in bulk and putting all that money in our pocket. That would be a great thing for the American row crop producer. Yeah, I sure would. It sure would. Well, Mike, I think we've covered it here. Um, before we shut it down, do you have any, any last words you'd like to throw out to the audience? Folks, stay positive. You know, we're, we're going to gonna see some challenges. We're going to see some folks get out of this business. Uh, that's just, that's a given. That's what the market does when it comes down off those high prices. We push those inefficient folks out. Don't let that get you down. Look at that as opportunity. There's going to be great, great chances here over the next five years to, to get ground right. I think to get machinery bought right. You guys in the machinery trading game, you're going to see opportunities out there as, as folks upgrade but maybe not the brand new is you know stay in business we're going to have decent times ahead so stay positive and, and stay politically engaged for sure okay. well mike thanks for being on the podcast hey case thanks for having me i wish all your listeners a great year and uh, i wish you the best of luck with uh, with episode 56 and beyond <laughs> well, i appreciate that thank you all right, well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Mike for being the guest on this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. Moving Iron LLC now has a website you can visit, movingironllc.com. Here you can find information on the 2018 Moving Iron Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there will be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And if you shop Amazon, please use the Amazon click-through at movingironllc.com. It won't cost you anything, and you'll still have the same experience that you're accustomed to while supporting the podcast. You can find this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.